The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gaiad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, uh, Eddie Alfenbein, who knows a thing or two about being an entrepreneur and investing in difficult environments. So, Eddie, for those who aren't familiar with your background, talk about who you are, how'd you get involved in markets, and what are you doing now? Sure. My name is Eddie Alfenbein. I guess my background is really with investment newsletters going back ooh, probably about 25 years now. And now I'm on Substack, so that world has, has changed a great deal. And about six years ago, I launched my own ETF. So let me let me back up. I started a blog in, I think, 2005. And each year on my blog, I listed my buy list. That was a set, a group of stocks that were set and forget. I couldn't make any changes during the entire year. And I tracked it. I tried to show investors that you can do well without making a lot of changes to your portfolio. So about six years ago, we launched a product based on the buy list. So the official name of the ETF is the Advisor Shares Focused Equity ETF. The ticker symbol is CWS, and that's based off the blog, which is called Crossing Wall Street. That still exists today. So I got the ETF, the blog, also on Twitter, along with you, and, and, and got the sub stack. So I got a bunch of different things going on at the same time. So we both share that commonality of being quite busy and being an entrepreneur in the investment business. And I don't think people really appreciate how difficult it is to launch public funds, something that's marked to market daily, where people increasingly are short term and will make decisions based on noise, as opposed to you know, a fundamental concept. I want you to talk about some of the things that may have surprised you in launching CWS and talk about maybe some of the economics, because it's quite an expensive endeavor to have a fund out there. It is not easy to do. I guess the first thing is that the media has such an intense focus on fees, and certainly fees are very important. But when people say, well, Vanguard charges four basis points, that's true, but they have how many trillions of dollars behind them, and it's just a, an algorithm that they're doing, I'm trying to, to pick stocks. I remember at one point before the launch, it was a meeting and all the principals were gathered around and we're going through all of the economics. By the way, I should say I work with advisor shares, Noah Hammond there, and they've been a, a terrific partner with me. And we were going through sort of all the, uh, the economics of the fund. And you, it, it really is astounding how many folks get their beak wet off a of fund. So you have 
the custodian fees, you have the exchange fees, you have the holding fees, you have the prospectus and the lawyers have to be paid. And I, I was like, you know, the cartoon with the, my eyeballs were like dollar signs as it kept switching. So more and more expenses go. So it, it helps to have, you know, the, the larger the fund you have, the better that is for you. But it is difficult. And there are a lot of new funds that launch that really never make it off the launch pad. So I'm happy to say we, we celebrated our fifth anniversary in September. So we're coming up on, uh, it'll be six years in just a, a couple months. But it, it, and, and another thing, let me add, how much of it is focused on gathering assets? So you think, oh, I can, you know, sit back and choose the wisest investments. And, you know, that is part of the job. But also just being out there, making sure that your name is known, any kind of opportunity where you get invited to speak or any podcast. That's important because, you know, there are so many thousands of ETFs out there and you have to explain why yours, why, you know, it's a good option for people. And it's very humbling, the idea that people trust an investment to you and your team. So there's a lot going on with an ETF. I'll throw out another thing that that people get very confused about because it's a small ETF is that people say, well, I'm worried about the liquidity. And you try to have this conversation with people saying the liquidity really doesn't matter in the ETF space. The liquidity matters with the underlying security, but with the actual ETF, it's not so much of a concern. But that is very difficult to get that lesson just trying to educate people on that. Yeah, so that's uh, been an upward battle for me too. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. And you know, you you'll have a a day. It's like, oh, you only had, you know, a thousand shares trader, even even less than that. And and you know, people assume that it's like they'll be holding holding the bag on something. Where with me, most of the underlying are very, very, if not blue chip chip stocks. Very conventional kind of investments with with large you know turnover. You, you would not never be get frozen out of the market. But uh, and even I don't know if you get this is that people don't even understand that they're actively managed funds. So I say I, I run an ETF, and they'll say, "Oh, what index?" <laughs> and so I guess that that's how the industry started. But it seems to have changed a great deal in the past few years. No, and I'm glad you mentioned that the earlier uh, point about the fees because you have this really bizarre cognitive dissonance when it comes to investor behavior. They want incredibly cheap fees, but they also want innovation. Mm-hmm. Well, the vanguards of the world are not going to innovate, right? They're just going to be cheap and, and collect those assets. And they've got so many assets to your point, so many dollars that they can charge four or five basis points and be profitable. But if you're a smaller shop and if you're a, an entrepreneur, especially a solo one, you got to be able to charge fees to also be able to survive, right? Exactly. Because it's like it's like you know. So you can't. You, on the one hand, you can't say your fees are too high, but I but I want more innovative options other than beta. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's exactly right. I, I think of it this way. I, I use this analogy. Imagine if a person is a classic car enthusiast and they have I don't know a, a '66 Mustang, and somebody comes along and says, "Well, what's the gas mileage on that?" And the, the thing is, the person who gets that car, they're not getting it. For the gas mileage, they're not getting it for the catalytic converter. They are into that car. And what we do is we're into stock picking. That's what we do. We're trying to beat the market. If you're trying to beat the market, you're going to beat the market or not beat the market. 
and the idea of try, you know, I, I, I'm not, I have nothing against indexing, but we're a very different animal. If you want to index, go ahead, knock yourself out. But we don't do that. We're a different animal than that. So comparing the fees to us, it just, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, no, I agree. And going back to your point about misconceptions, right? So a lot of people in the space not, may not be aware of these kind of numbers, but you know, you really talk about somewhere between 200 to 250 K annually if you had zero assets just to have a fund open. Mm-hmm. And zero assets, you're paying out of pocket. Uh, you're paying rent just to keep the right. vehicle open, right? Never mind all the regulatory prospectus one-off fees at the start. Okay, so you have that aspect, So, which means that what? Which means that you're an entrepreneur and you have skin in the game because it's not just about your IP and your strategy, but it's also literally about your own capital that you're mm-hmm. putting in because you believe this approach is going to work. And I only say that because I'm sure you've seen a lot of this too, Eddie, over the years. You go through a drawdown and then people will um, automatically react and say, oh, look, you made uh, you made more money than your shareholders. It's like, no, that's not the reality at all unless you have billions of dollars in assets because uh, unless you're at break even, it's, it's, you're paying for it, right? You're, you, right? Your conviction is is through your own spend, right? Mm-hmm. So I, wa- I want you to talk about the volatility of assets for a moment here because it's been my belief for a long time that the volatility in assets under management in AUM for an ETF – is way higher than the volatility of the underlying strategy. I would have to say I don't think that's the case in my point because we've been very fortunate that we have not had major redemptions. Actually, over the life of the fund, it's been pretty minor. It's almost consistently been share creations and the the redemptions – have been almost a um, a noise factor. You know, it's, it's so low. Is, is that what you're you're getting out? I yeah, make exactly. sure I'm the tur- right. The turnover of the shareholder base, right? Yeah, it's it's been my experience that um, just it, it, one thing is to see the studies that you know if the market goes up, people chase. If the market goes down, people sell. But nothing is to see it that if you're up one percent in a single day, you get flows the day, day after, right? Uh-huh. If you're down one percent the day after, get sells, right? I would say from well, this is where the big bear market of 2020, the COVID crash was a very, it was like a real world experiment for our fund to see how investors would behave. And I was really impressed with how sticky the assets were. I think we had two redemptions in that, in our share amounts, which I, I was, I was impressed. So people really stuck around and I, and I like to believe that was just the education that we have that we brought people on telling us what we're about, what we try to do, not to be rattled by these downturns. So that's, I, I think that was a big help during a difficult time that people stuck with us. It, like I said, it was a real world experiment and I, I think we passed. So I want to go with that a little bit more because I've had pushback from people saying, don't be out there so much. Don't, don't put your, your face out there so much. Let, let there be some time, right? But you, again, as an entrepreneur, you can't ever stop being out there and pushing right? mm-hmm. because you can't stop marketing just because you're in a decline. And that's a very hard thing to do because we're all human. And you know, you know that you leave yourself vulnerable to criticism when you're in a drawdown talking about your strategy. So you mentioned education as part of that process of the sticky money, keeping the money in the fund. Talk about how you how you go about doing that. Is it purely through social media? Do you do you actively reach out to investors in the fund? Talk about your process to constantly re-educate people. Yeah, so I mean, we got the the fund, you know, the website, and we do updates on that. Of course, the the buy list, uh, it, it, you know, all the uh, 
the positions are 100% transparent, so you always see what's going on. And since it is a set and forget uh, fund, there isn't much change in, in even the, the allocation of the stocks. Also, of course, we have social media, which is a big help. So Twitter, you have a nice following there. And the blog, people go to that. So we, we have that. And then also Substack. So I have, I have two Substacks. I have a free letter and then I have a, uh, a paid one. So it's good, you know, sort of get, getting the education out there so people know exactly what's going on. It's a world, you know, like Peter Lynch was not able to do that. He couldn't turn to Twitter, turn to Substack and keep people abreast of what was going on. There were updates, I believe, quarterly back then. Let, let me add a, a, a few other points getting to that. Another thing trying to educate people on is that in markets where we are, a our beta is lower than one. So on difficult markets, we uh, we outperform. And that's always sounds – it's an odd argument saying we – we suck just less than everybody else, but it's a very important point because that is for so many uh, – if, if you look at strategies that have been successful, where is the outperformance? It's very often in those lousy markets, and they you know, sort of tread water with the bull market. Uh, that you know, bull market, everybody's a genius. And can I address a, another uh, point is that we were – we I believe – the first ETF to have a fulcrum fee. So that's a you know fee. It, it's dependent on how well the ETF did. If we beat the market, sort of, sort of like a hedge fund performance fee, right? Exactly. Above the hurdle, right? That that's that that's so as you know, Nassim Flood, we have our, our skin in the game. Now that that existed in the traditional mutual fund, but I, I believe we were the very first one in the ETF space. I, I think others have done it uh, since then. Okay, so we talked about the business side of investing. And I'm sharing at the top here, which uh, the, uh, in the nest, I guess they call it a nest now. I just call it the top of the space. Everyone says nest. So I'm sharing in the nest at the top of the space here, this tweet that you put out that's in your pinned, uh, that's your pinned tweet in 2011, which is that a bubble is a bull market in which you don't have a position. <laughs> uh, and I've said that actually myself. I don't know if I got it from you or if I got it from somewhere else and it's a derivative. I have no idea. But I, I am curious, Eddie, if, if, you were, if you were saying that maybe in 2011 in response to Bitcoin. Because I kind of feel like a lot of these kind of things as far as regret when it comes to either buying cryptocurrencies, which went to the moon, or uh, selling when they as they have been crashing, uh, it had a lot to do with this uh, idea of uh, a bubble being something that you're either uh, not in, which is the definition, or is something that isn't a bubble because you're in it and makes you think that it's not a bubble as a result. Yeah, I don't remember if the, if that post was directly uh, in response to Bitcoin. The thing about Bitcoin, and I think this is touching on uh, what, what, what you're talking about, I've never seen an asset where it seems like nobody can say, ah, you know, I take it or leave it. No, nobody is allowed to have a middle ground position on Bitcoin. Thank you for saying that. It's like, right, <laughs> you're either a maxi or you think it's garbage. And it's like exactly. in the middle, you get attacked, which is just insane to me. But it's what really stands out is the moral tenor of the debate. You know, people say, I, I, you know, like, I don't see the point of Bitcoin. That's not what they say. They say it's a scam. You know, Bill Gates just said recently it's a sham. And, and then of course they attack him. You know, it, it's, a, it's a Ponzi. You know, you always know whenever something's called a Ponzi scheme, that has to be uh, rolled out. I, you know, I'm not that invested literally or emotionally into it, but that's the thing that I find so bizarre 
about uh, about Bitcoin. It, you know, there, there, there's no there's no such thing as a moderate in the Bitcoin space. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I do wonder if, and this is going to sound like a strange idea, but I do wonder if Twitter is partially to blame for <clears throat> for this kind of cult like behavior, right? Because if the algorithm, you're absolutely would, right. Well, absolutely. Let, let, let's 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 go with that because it's not just about Bitcoin; it's also about Tesla and and these kind of uh, self identity uh, identities that people take on with what they're investing in. Right. It's like you're not an investor. You're a Tesla, Teslite, whatever you would. <laughs> no, right. You, you, gotta, you have to have some kind of categorization. <laughs> so, so to the point, extent that social media throws at you things that you agree with, it only entrenches your belief further and then creates this kind of cult like behavior. Yeah. Which and the creates bubbles. the leverage. And yeah, so let's kind of go with that. Yeah. No, you're, you're exactly right. But, but I, I think you really put your, your finger on it that it's, it's like a lifestyle positioning. You know, it, it's almost the same way that, that people have their sports teams or their favorite band or their favorite restaurant. It's like, how dare you criticize Tesla? Like, what is wrong with you? Right. How it's dare like, it's like you? People take it personally, which is a yeah. really strange thing. I don't remember that being a dynamic, you know, a decade ago. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, I wrote, wrote it's a great you know, line about investing. Stocks don't know you own them. And I know, you know, it, it, it sounds funny, but it really is true. Stocks don't know, and even if they did know, they still wouldn't care. So you, the thing about, about investing is it's the driest topic. It has to be approached with the the most sober mindset that you can have. And that's very difficult for people to do. You have to shut off your emotions. Mr. Spock. Would have been an outstanding investor. Just shut off and be logical about it. But yeah, people just it, it, social media amplifies all the uh, worst instincts for this. All right, so let's let's go with the word logical for a moment because sometimes it's logical to play a mania, right? You can argue, True. and sometimes you can you can say it's logical to buy when nobody else is is buying, right? What's the logical macro move here, right? Because you've had. A tremendous amount of wealth lost. Uh, take commodities out of the equation. This has been one of the strangest anomalies in the cro- cross correlations of asset classes to each other in history, even going back to the stagflation 70s. Is the logical thing in an environment where everyone's still worried about inflation and talking about it nonstop to bet the other way, to be contrarian, to actually uh, go into equities? Or is the logical thing to say, well, we haven't seen the the bottom yet. I'm not going to touch it until it's obvious that we're at a low. The thing about inflation that makes me hopeful is that people are so concerned about it, particularly the Federal Reserve. It's like when you know young parents or expected children, they say, you know, I'm really nervous if I'm going to be a good father. Okay. If you're nervous, you're going to be a good father. You know, and and when they say we're worried about it, what worries people is <laughs> me is when they're not worried about inflation, when they're very very live attitude about it. So the Fed is concerned about inflation. So I I would bet that at some point they will get their hands around this and bring inflation back under control. 
exactly when this will be, I just don't know. But I think it's very clear that they have telegraphed their intentions that they want to take on inflation. Getting back to your question about you know, sort of what is the logical move, I would say it is a good time to, to be long equities. Particularly, I would be longer the low beta space. This is an area that really got left behind during the COVID bull market. And that was really, I would, I, I would put blame on the Fed again as having just when you take interest rates, you know, it's, it's not just stock prices, but it's price per risk. And the Fed took risk off the table during COVID. And that was a, distorted the entire market. It's like putting a, a magnet near the compass. Everything got thrown off. And these risky areas in the market took off, and not just in the market, but outside the market in crypto and NFT. What you know? What do you say? Oh, it's a twenty-three PE ratio. What does that matter when interest rates are at zero? Who cares? But now, with interest rates going off, that whole bull market is being unspun, and that's what we're watching right now. So I think that these areas that have been left behind, like a lot of these low beta names, they've been doing well, and I think they're going to continue to outperform. And I think it's good that the sell-off the last few weeks has been even better for them, for a long investor now. When you say low beta, what, what you would call low beta, I would flip it and say it's more about high dividend, right? Or at least consistent dividend players, payers. Because I want to I want to go with that that point here, which is that you know yields have been rising, not just in the bond market, mm-hmm. rising obviously as stocks have been going down with dividend yields, and a lot of the low beta stocks hit the beast for the slow and steady you know, dividend payers that now have a better yield. In this kind of environment, Eddie, with your approach to fundamental analysis, how much attention do you give to dividend yield and the possibility of there being dividend hikes or cuts? Yeah, I mean, a great deal. I, I pay that is of the most important things that I look at right now. That seeing that companies that not only pay dividends but consistently increase their dividends, and companies that have consistently increased the fundamentals behind the dividends, so have that steadily rising line of sales, of earnings, of cash flow, of free cash flow, and they're able to pass that along to shareholders. I think that's critical in an environment like like we're in right now. Where is um, Are there certain industries that are more apt to having dividend cuts when there's high stress, high volatility? What, what tends to get uh, fundamentally hit the most from a cash flow perspective in this kind of uh, environment? Well, I mean, it's the cyclical areas. You know, it, it really is. You, you, you know, that, that's why when where you get the reports about, you know, home building, and and the oil companies and the uh, commodity sector, it tends to be feast or famine. So you'll get the uh, the dividend increases, and then uh, so often in the energy space, you'll look at something. Oh, it's yielding twelve percent. Well, that's because the, you know everyone expects it to be cut. So it's the the big difference between that is the cyclical space and the more defensive stocks. Okay, and does again recognizing that you're much more on the bottom up uh, from the bottom up perspective than the top down, you can't obviously ignore the macro environment completely, right? Because the macro environment still would will impact some bottom up analysis. How do you think about time frame whenever you invest? So if you talk about low beta, high dividend plays in this kind of environment, at what point would you say you know what? Now it's time to actually tilt more towards cyclicals, more towards capital gains as the driver of total return. Mm-hmm. So the buy list and the ETF is 25 stocks, 
and each year I replace five. So that's the turnover is 20%. So that turns out to an average holding period of five years. Some have been in much longer. Some get in and out very quickly. But the average is five years. And that's about a good part of an economic cycle. So I really don't use the – and I think I'm unique in this respect – is that I don't use a macro view to make – the the different allocations that I do each year. For example, I don't have any energy stocks. And I'm often asked, oh, is that sort of a call I have on the energy sector? And, it, and it's not at all. I just haven't seen anything that gets me at that moment. So I think I'm probably unique in that it really does not play a major role in how I look at the market. So one of the things I think is interesting around people talking about fundamental analysis is I rarely hear focus around how do you actually construct a portfolio around stocks that you want to buy because you know you've got to be careful of too much concentration in any particular industry and sure there are going to be plenty of these junctures where individual stocks in a particular industry across the board are just buys everywhere right but talk about sector weighting what are some of the constraints that you self imposed well you know, that, that's a really good question because so often if you're very fundamentally focused for some reason some sector is going to be knocked down or you know unf- or inflated and you, is it a buy for a compelling reason or is it for some transient reason and Let's say you see all sort of, you know, banks in one sector of the country, all REITs or something like that. It doesn't mean they're all bargains. Something is going on that is pushing that. So if you're, if you're a fundamentalist, you risk being very misallocated in your portfolio. So that's something always to look out for. Now, in my case, I particularly have an affinity for a lot of medical instruments stocks and also a lot of consumer non-cyclicals. And I'm afraid that I would load up too much on those. So I try to always watch my hand in in not being too heavily uh, geared into that area. And I want to make sure that I have enough cyclicals so the fund is fairly balanced. But that's a, that's something I, I, I know my my problems on that i know my limitations so i try to watch that very carefully so the fund is not just some uh closet indexing of a you know some sort of defensive index all right so let's talk about metrics that you think are worth paying attention to metrics that you think are not worth paying attention to right so mm-hmm. a lot of studies around free cash flow a lot of studies around the low beta anomaly when you look at an individual company when something catches your eye What's the first thing that you turn towards and what's something that or what are a set of things that you would otherwise ignore? My my view is I look at everything, but I follow nothing. So I try to get, you know, I mean, what, you know, looking at you know one variable that speaks everything. So the most important thing, I think, is uh, is the trend of earnings. How is that good? I also like to look at the accounting. How much can I trust? what the company is saying. Do I, I, I feel that their communication with shareholders is done well? I try to look at you know, what, what they say as far as earnings will be for the year and does that match up? 
certainly look at all the fundamentals as far as sales growth, earnings growth, want to see a nice dividend is always good. How are they doing relative to their peers? A nice easy way just to kind of first level to analyze companies is compare operating earnings within a particular sector. That can tell you a lot. Operating margin doesn't come easy. So it can it can really tell you who has pricing power within that sector. Try to just, you know, everything I can, but I would never say, oh, I just follow the beta. I just follow the dividend yield. The thing is that numbers are a reflection of reality. They're not reality themselves. A lot of investors get confused by that. Numbers should tell a story. You want to find out what the story is. Not The end is not the numbers. The end is the story. Find out why is it is it a good buy? Why do they dominate their market? Why are their customers so loyal to them? That's the key to get at. And sometimes maybe the best thing to do is not to find or screen for buys, but rather screen for things that you would avoid. And I have to assume that there are probably a lot of stocks on a fundamental basis that are not worth paying attention to, largely because the interest coverage ratio is probably elevated due to higher interest expense now and this kind of tremendous number of companies that are so-called zombie companies, right? That really mm-hmm. shouldn't be around because of the amount of debt that they have. Talk about what are some of the red flags, right? That gets something avoided by you when you look at something or removed from a buy list. Right. W- one area, for example, is I'm always leery of biotech stocks. And I'll be frank, so many of these stocks probably should not be public where they are right now. And they just use it for massive amounts of to raise massive amounts of capital to do their R and D, and it always seems that the uh, payoff is years away. And they there are breathless uh, press releases, but very little in the way of actual earnings. I remember there was a, a, a years ago there was a saying that in a an annual report. The information on the page is inversely related to the stock of the paper used in it. The glossy pages with all the fancy pictures, that's useless. But the rough paper in the back, that's the to pay attention to. I don't like companies that are sort of uh, use too much monkeying around with their accounting. I certainly understand that there is a reason for pro forma accounting. But I like you know, companies that I trust. I, they use it for a good reason. There are companies that use that for less good reasons. And there are companies that I just see, I just don't see a future in. I see it seems like they're, they're spinning their wheels. I don't know exactly what their, their model is. You know, how does the future look? How do they see this working out? And so many of them I see just, I don't see a good answer. Take a, a, a company like, like Twitter. In many ways, it's a great product. I love the product, but it's not a very profitable company. It doesn't seem to be a terribly well-run company. And I wonder if Mr. Musk, I, I don't think he's very serious about the deal at this point, but something there needs to be done. That's a good example of a company. I just don't know what the future, You know, how do they see the future playing out? I just don't see it. I think a lot of longer-term investors, if we're in this high inflation environment for a while, they're going to want to focus much more on companies that have pricing power. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that's yeah, at least to keep up as far as their earnings with the rate of inflation. And obviously low beta names because they tilt more towards consumer staples, healthcare, 
utilities, there's kind of an inelastic aspect to it. It kind of makes sense that those those lower beta names, high dividend names, would have more pricing power than other sectors and industries. But when you drill down to those low beta sectors and industries, what are some of the, on that pricing and PowerPoint, what are some of the things that you you look for? Because again, that's macro and micro kind of marrying them two together, right? Top down and bottom up. Mm-hmm. But they mm-hmm. are very much related in this kind of environment. And if I could point out uh, something that I think is always a good lesson for investors in this type of environment, what company became such a major powerhouse from the 60s into the early 80s during the inflation period? And that was Walmart because they, they, they are fanatical about prices and they're not a traditional low beta name. Maybe they are now, but I think they were much more aggressive back in the 60s. But they did so well because they had an answer to inflation. They were fanatical about their margins. They were fanatical about inventory control. And they spread across the country. Inflation was was their business model for a good part of 20 years. But get, getting back to what you're, you're asking, I think the, the key is I like to look at the operating margin versus their competitors. It shows what kind of power – they have within the market and the ability to raise prices. And you, there are some companies that they're just unable to raise prices. The people, it's the it's the switching effect. How easily will they go from one to another? If you think about your own shopping, any typical consumer, if there's some product, if, it, if the price goes up by 5 or 10%, you'll probably still buy it. But there's something like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change. So you just got to sort of approach that macro at a macro level. How do people, you know, Harley Davidson, you know, they have not just customers, but they have legions. People are incredibly loyal to their product. Other companies, it doesn't quite work so way. You know, look at uh, uh, the social media companies before Facebook. You know, they dropped it at them as soon as they could. That's how things play out in in the larger economy. I think one of the pushbacks against stock picking over the last several years has been that everything's largely been driven by only one analyst, which is you know the Federal Reserve, right? From the standpoint mm-hmm. that everything kind of co-moves, and and there have been a lot of studies that show that stocks beta betas have been kind of clustering more and more because they're in different funds and they all kind of move as one sort of you know behemoth in that sense. When you're in a in a more volatile regime, how does volatility impact valuation, right? Meaning, do you find it easier to find opportunities in higher volatility or is in some ways it may be easier to find opportunities when you're in low vol regimes? Talk talk about that, that process. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, actually, I think the high volatility is much better because you know, you're able to get. It's more likely that it will wander away from the the closest thing to fair value that it will go above above it and below it. Also, I don't know if this is exactly what what you're asking, but it's see, I have a different view on volatility than 
uh, other people. I think it's a bit heterodox. I don't view volatility as something separate, as sort of like a, people view it as a gremlin sitting on the wing of the market. And I see volatility as directly related to what the market just did. And the overwhelming times you see of the high vol- volatility periods, it's when the S&P 500 is below its 50-day or 200-day moving average. And I've looked at the VIX, compare the VIX to where the S&P 500 is off its six-month moving average. And like the, uh, you know, the R-squared, it's something like 0.7. I mean, it's very high. So it, 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 volatility is what the market just did. And uh, if you also look when stocks are at all-time highs, the, if, if you just look at that as its own market, just all, the, the next day following an all-time high, the volatility is far lower than the market usually is. In fact, I, we, you rarely have a 1% day when you're at an all-time high. It does happen, but it's pretty rare. And, and 2% days, I think there's only been a few in the past century. So, so my volati- when you talk about high volatility, usually you're talking about lousy market. So that's another opportunity for a, a value-oriented fundamental investor. Okay, so you mentioned that you do these trades, I think, once a year. And when that time comes up, how long have you been looking at stocks to position into? Meaning, what's how long of a process does it take for you to actually say, okay, this is what I like, this is what I want to buy when the time comes? And you know that once you've determined that, is there anything that – has there ever been a time where you've got your buy list and then you're at the moment in time where you're going to change the constituents of the ETF and you said, you know what? Maybe now is actually not the time to buy into this thing that I thought maybe three months ago would be a place to allocate to. Mm-hmm. I, I've never had sort of like the, the cold feet. I think there was a and, and my memory is going. I think there was a buyout between. So I always try to say to you know, the, the fund holders is that I announced the changes in uh, right around Christmas time, about a week before the changes take place on the first day of trading, because I don't want people to say, oh, you're front running or you're playing games with it or, or something like that. So I always you know, do, do it ahead of time. I usually have a pretty good idea by Thanksgiving of what I'm going to do. And usually it's just change up. Usually just the, the final prices is really what I'm looking forward to. There's a list, a, a kind of informal watch list of maybe 80 to 100 names of stocks that I can't say I know really well, but I know something about, and I generally consider these what I would call high-quality names. They're, it, it, it's kind of the minor leagues for the buy list. So I know something about. So what I usually do is as the year goes on, and so we're near the midpoint of this year, is I, I'll look at those names within the within the watch list and see – what are the most compelling names? What prices are going for the best bargains? And just gradually, by November, yeah, I usually have a good idea. And then I, I just wrap it up through uh, through the holiday season. I remember coming out of the 2008 low, 2008 and then the 2009 low, there were, there were some very bullish people who correctly noted that markets would rally following the March low in 2009. And I think it was Luthold uh, who said something along the lines of, I feel like a kid in the candy store <laughs> back then looking at individual stocks. When you look at what's happened in terms of the stock market decline this year, do you have a similar feeling or do you think that there still isn't enough sort of broad-based quality 
to really kind of make a statement like that. I, yeah, I would agree with the latter. I still want to see some more going on. There have been posi- you know, times where I've looked at the stocks like, oh my God, I can't believe that this stock is going. You know, it, the trend on Wall Street, it always goes further than you think possible. You think, oh, this stock can't get to this level. Uh, it can, and it can go much beyond that. And it can go on the downside as well. Because there's a very good chance that this uh, sell-off is going to continue all year and beyond. I'm not saying it will, but that would not be unreasonable in historical terms. So on that point, let's go back to, you know, you've got an equity fund. I've got risk-on, risk-off strategies, which are all acting risk-on because everything's, you know, correlated in this shit show of an environment. How do you... uh, (laughs) No, really, I'm, I'm very. Sure <laughs> no, I know <laughs> the, the, the the technical term. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Exactly. I joke. That's the CFA level four term, right? That's. Uh, <laughs> but 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 when you're in these kind of periods, um, how do you try to manage your own emotions, right? Because yeah, you've got you know sticky investors, but I'm sure you still get nervous, right? If you if the drawdown gets worse, maybe some people will sell and. Yeah, so so how do you kind of manage your own uh, conviction in the business of investing when you know, the cycle is not favoring investing? Period. You know, that, that's a good question because people always ask me. You change once a year, and they're just baffled by this. Like, yeah, but what if you want to? What if you want to? And I find it's a it's a benefit. It, it, it's a feature, not a bug. Because there's so many other times I probably would have panicked and sold and got out of names that would have been excellent performers. I remember in, in 2020, the stock Middleby, it just absolutely tanked. It turned around and was a very, very strong performer in, in 2020 and in, into 2021. If I acted my emotions, I would have bailed on it. But just because of the rules of the fund, I stayed in and it was much to my benefit. So that's what keeps my emotions in check is the actual prospectus of my fund it tells me that I can't do this, so I better. And another thing is that even let's say if investors impose some artificial rule on themselves, let's say I'll I'll check the stock, one particular stock every three months, every six months, or something like that. That can be very helpful, even if you're just if you're imposing some rule about how you go about it. Doesn't matter what the particulars are, but you're re- reducing it to a more business-like approach, and that's always going to be beneficial for you and your returns. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that point about a prospectus. But okay, so so I'm looking at some of the holdings here. I see Hershey is your top pick. I actually was not too long ago in Hershey, just staying there for a little getaway. But just t- walk us through as an example for the audience. What made you have some conviction in Hershey as a top pick? What's your investment process in coming to that conclusion? Well, uh, we'll put it like this. There's no town in America called gluten-free Pennsylvania. <laughs> there will be, given where wheat prices are at. Yeah, the, yeah well, that's true. That, that is true. But at least for a long time, there has been. You know, but betting on the on the eating habits of Americans always going to their sweet tooth is is a good place. It's it's a wonderful company, great brand name, well run company. It's been I think our our strongest stock of this year, and it really started around I'm going to say October. It it started to run, rally very nicely. Quintessential defensive stocks, probably holding in your risk on portfolio 
also a, a, a long streak of raising dividends. It really hits all those areas that I'm looking for, and it's been a very good stock for us. They even there was a story, and this is a good example of how investing can work. I'm trying to remember, it's it, they built, they made some major investments to expand their capacity. So it was done a few months ago, and they were still falling short of that. So they were trying to meet demand, and they still were having trouble doing this. And this was like a story in USA Today. It's not you know, the most valuable story. It's not through some research report. But the company is telling you. And this, if you invested at the time that story came out, you would have done very well. And, and I'm just curious, has there been anything around these kind of supply chain disruptions when it comes to sugar, to Hershey? And, and talk about that after, because again, that's more macro, but you got to assume that factors into the, the bottom upside too. It, it, it absolutely does. It did affect them. I believe it's better now. And there was also an issue with the cocoa prices as well. And my understanding is it's much better than it was. As far as some of the other companies in, in CWS, what else has been interesting to you that you've noted either should maybe get more attention by investors, in your opinion, or maybe just is, is worth kind of keeping on a, on a watch list? Mm-hmm. A good example, uh, a company that came out with earnings recently is the was this Science Applications Incorporated, the SAIC is better known as, I always uh, screw up the, the official name. But it's been – they had a great earnings report. They told people that they raised guidance, and even by the increased guidance, it's something like 12 times earnings. They're basically the IT department for the Pentagon. It's Science Applications International, SAIC. Actually, kind of an interesting history that the they, they were private for many years based in Northern Virginia, and the founder of the company – was a big, strong believer of employee-owned companies. And he, I'm probably going to screw this up, but it's something like this. He developed an internal stock exchange just for the employees and their shares. He actually, I think, was an RIA inside the company so employees could sell their shares so the company didn't have to go public. Getting around the issue of, what do they call them, golden cuffs. So people have these enormous paper wealth, but they can't leave the company because it's all tied up in that. So he did this, and this is like in the 1970s, but it's a, it really is a tremendous company, beat earnings, raised guidance, and still going for a very good uh, price and you know, dropped down. So they gapped up after their earnings report, and then the last few days they gave it all back, but that's just because of the market, really nothing to do with them. Neat little company, and it just doesn't seem to get the attention that I think it's it deserves, but I'm fine with that. <laughs> Do you ever factor anything on charts when you look at individual companies? So again, I understand it's a longer term approach and it's fundamental, bottom up driven. But let's face it, it's human nature to want to see how yeah. how price looks over time, right? And if you can't help but in your mind, you know, draw little trend lines and look at indicators. So is that ever a factor in anything that you do? You're absolutely right when you say that because there are some people who want to be strongly anti. They say, oh, it's just a financial astrology and you should ignore it. And I do think it, it, it is worthwhile. And I think there are overlaps between technical research and fundamental research. A good example is I like to look at the relative strength of stocks. So, you know, just uh, you know, divide it by the S&P 500 or better yet, divide it by one of the sector ETFs. 
And it of course, it tells you a lot if your bank is trailing all the other banks. That's an important piece of information. So I look at a lot of, I, I can't say I make a decision based on that, but I certainly, and you want to know, is this a defensive stock? Is it, 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 you know, how does it behave when other high dividend stocks are behaving or, or other, what is it moving like? You know, for example, you've probably seen this, the NASDAQ and, um, and Bitcoin move very similarly these days. That's that's a, beast, a bit of fundamental information because it's telling you that they're all being treated in the same risk bucket. But yeah, it, it is human nature and there are important things that you can uh, you can gather from looking at the stock, the, the behavior of the share price. A lot of people have said that stock picking is dead, right? That it's a lot of that kind of went away again with this point about central bank liquidity. Stock picking goes through cycles, right? Just like everything else. When you think about if we're entering an era where stock picking will matter, where it's not just going to be as simple as throw money into a passive index. From your historical studies, from your experience, how long do stock picking cycles tend to last, right? Because I think that's always the question, you know, if you're trying to differentiate from cheap beta, you've got to be in the right environment to allow for other things to outperform that cheap beta, but then at some point, cheap beta comes back into play. It's interesting that stock picking cycles seem to last very, very much the similar length that stock cycles last. It seems to be oddly symmetrical, but you're right. Stock picking is completely dead. It's done. It's over. I mean, I know there's $20, $30 trillion in the market, but yeah, it's all over, and all we need to do is invest in indexes. I mean, it's such a, a silly thing. The thing is that there's a few things that have to be said for it. One is that stock picking is a lot of fun. It's, and that's an important fact that people overlook. They act like it's, you know, this incredibly dry things to do. Investing in stocks is fun. It's fun watching the stock go up and down. That doesn't mean you're not taking it seriously, but it's an important fact. And also, you're putting your judgment against the entire market. You say, I know better than you. I have found something that not everybody else has seen. That's exhilarating. And you get to have your thesis tested out in real time. What other industry can you do that? I also know that you know being a stock picker it's it really trains your mind away from giving these you'll listen to a sports report and somebody will have these really trite opinions about why the game will walk out. And a person who's a stock picker you you don't think that way. You think in a much more broad way of all the different variables that impact what you're trying to predict. As long as that exists, there are going to be stock pickers. Whatever the volatility is, whatever how the underlying markets are, if there's a way to find some obscure company that nobody knows about and you can get it for 30 cents on the dollar, there's always going to be stock picking. You ever look, Eddie, at, at things like short interest or, or anything that, you know, structural that might cause you know, price to go up? Because even though that's not fundamental analysis in a classic sense, right? That's There's certainly a, an aspect to price movement based on one-way bets. Well, from my understanding of the research, and I could be wrong on this, is that on the extreme levels, it's a pretty good indicator on that. Has that been your view? 
yeah, I think in extremes, right? But I'm saying yeah. like, that's something you would explicitly look at and say, okay, that's interesting. Maybe yeah. uh, there's too much short interest and funny. Exactly, stuff. exactly. So it would be a red flag at the extreme levels, and I can certainly see times where I've looked at that. But as I said, it's that my understanding is that it's only at at the most extreme, and it's a pretty good indicator of what to stay away from. So again, everybody tends to look at charts and it seems like everybody's a pro technician, but it's a lot harder to be a pro fundamental analyst. Talk about some of the some of the books that you found were helpful in framing your way of looking at stock picking. What are things that are must reads, things that you think the audience should pay attention to? Mm-hmm. I think really one of the you know easiest and most basic ones, and it's still very good, is Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street. And then he had a follow-up with something like how to, how to beat the street or something like that. But the one up on Wall Street, it's you know legendary fund manager at Fidelity Magellan, and he just makes the case that uh, you know the stock market goes up. Don't try to you know worry about timing the market and trying to get in and out of the right times. And that stocks are not lottery tickets, but they are actual shares in companies. If companies do well, then the stocks do well. And to have a good solid portfolio of strong companies and over the long term you'll do well. Those are the simplest things. People just you know, I've been doing this for 25 years and I'll still get an email. If you could buy just one stock right now, what would it be? And uh, you know, so you realize that we've got the, the level of education, we've barely made a dent. But so Peter Lynch is one up on Wall Street. Another great area is the collected annual reports of Warren Buffett. And I believe there's a page right at the Berkshire Hathaway where they list all of the annual or shareholder letters, I guess is what I should say, going back for the last 30 or 40 years. And he has a really folksy way of explaining the market and explaining what he did and why he did it. And he certainly has a very good track record. And it's a very, it's a very approachable way. I find so much about investing and finance, people try to make it more obscure and more arcane than it truly is. Yeah, no, I that I fully agree with. So again, for everybody that's here, make sure you follow Eddie Alphenbein, check out his research, his fund as well. And the uh, Substack, am, get the Substack. And Substack, yes, definitely Substack. Eddie, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for spending Saturday with us. And everybody, enjoy the rest of your weekend. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.